0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast.
1: We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it.
0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 43, Felina, where we will be looking at chapters 84 and 85 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of Pyrrhic Victory.
1: Alrighty. By now, I hope you know the drill. Because we are five episodes, including this one, away from the end of The Name of the Wind. Why are you just joining us now?
0: (laughs) Spoilers, maybe? You just want to find out how it ends?
1: But I mean, it's like a third of the way through the story.
0: More than a third.
1: (laughs) No, 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 no. I mean like a third of the way through the overarching story.
0: Oh, yeah, that.
1: If you can call what is a 27-hour journey through an audiobook when the second one is 48 hours. If you could call this the third of the way through part. Okay, now that we've gotten what is a longer tangent than the explanation out of the way, here is an explanation of our podcast. Each week, we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian *Nameless of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives.
0: Now let's see if you can channel that energy in your recap.
1: No comment.
0: Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though, Pat, if you're listening, well, you know how to find us. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're just a weirdo who lurks in the depths of time, viewing everything from a distant remove, and you don't care for such constructs as linear progression. Either way, spoilers ahead. Finally, word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we won't stand for any abuse of the author responsible. In short, let's be kind to one another. And with that, it's time for us to do our 45-second recap. It is Phoenix's turn this time. And let me get a timer up for you.
1: Thank you very, very much. As a side note, on the day that we are recording this, it is National Coming Out Day. And I just want to say I don't usually shout my orientation or my gender or any such things from the rooftop. It's not a secret. But today is one of those days that reminds you that other people might want to know because they might not feel comfortable in their own skin and it might make them feel better to know that there are other people out there that are similar to them. And so very very quickly now that I have long preambled this. (laughs) My orientation is panromantic asexual and my gender identify as gender flux because sometimes I feel like a little bit of a girl, so demigirl, and then it fluxes to agender because I just don't feel like there's a gender associated with my body. So if you're wondering pronouns, she her is fine, they them is fine, Everything's good. This will be coming out a couple weeks after the day that we record it. So (laughs) Yay, but you know just off the cuff just wanted to let you know that if you are anything other than cis het You're not alone
0: and if you are cis het Let's normalize sharing our pronouns because it's important to get people comfortable using that I use he him and his also Yes, that (laughs)
1: All Okay. <laughs> All the awkwardness
0: out of the way. All that taken care of. Are you ready?
1: That wasn't a stalling tactic. Oh, speaking of not a stalling tactic, I did actually eat a raspberry. The audio will be inserted here. You're welcome. All right. Well, I found some nasty, nasty, gross things in the refrigerator. I assume I have to eat one. Sorry for the shaky cam, but the thing that I want to eat is also a thing apparently that Sokka wants to eat. We're gonna try to keep him away from that. No guarantees though.
0: He thinks it's yogurt.
1: (laughs) Thanks for being a distraction, little buddy. You gonna keep me from having to eat these nasty, nasty things? Is that what's gonna happen? You don't have to eat one. Oh, squirrel moment. Maybe if you're distracted, you can distract the bear away from, what what are you doing? Oh no, 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 hold on. Give me a second. Why are you insisting that you have to feed that to me?
0: Well, I wanna make sure you eat it. I'm trying to make sure that you don't just, you know, skive off. You're procrastinating, so I'm eliminating the procrastination, that's all. But, but, but that's
1: okay. It's absolutely fine. No, I I was gonna choose my own, put that back. I'm helping. (laughs) You are not helping? Nope. Not procrastinating. I swear. I swear. Not
0: procrastinating.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Not procrastinating. Nope. Okay. They're raspberries. This is disgusting. That doesn't even want to come out of the stupid little tin. I don't even know what a good raspberry looks like. That's a good one. You sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. Thanks, I hate it. I swear it's in my mouth. I'm not happy. I'm really. Not happy guys, this is disgusting. Okay, I to get out of my mouth.
0: What's your tongue?
1: Not happy. Boo is actually going to the bathroom and making it stink, which is better than this. That's how much I hate raspberries, guys. But I ate the damn thing. <sighs> and we're back. That raspberry was disgusting.
0: Oh, man, it was so nice to have raspberries in the house, though, for once.
1: I've made this point before. You do all the grocery shopping!
0: Well, now I had an excuse to get them, so it was nice. So I've got a timer ready. You think you can avoid the raspberries this time?
1: Yes, I think I can.
0: In five, four, three, two, one, go.
1: Uh, you're... I'm off mostly because... <laughs> <laughs> You're starting with five. Okay. Why are you doing this?
0: I don't know. All right. In three, two, one, go. Quoth
1: finds Denna by literally bumping into her and Emre. They have a subtle exchange to catch one another up on their respective endings in Trapin. Quoth has lunch with Will and Sim and leaves his loot case open as if inviting someone to steal the loot. So Ambrose does. Then Ambrose tosses it, making every musician cringe, and it breaks when Quoth fails to catch it. Quoth calls the name of the wind to attack Ambrose, who proceeds to bring Quoth up on charges of malfeasance, though in the end, Ambrose is forced to pay 20 talents to Quoth, but Quoth also gets expelled. So, shruggies?
0: 36.12 seconds. You made it! Yay! All right. So this is one of those epilogue chapters but a lot actually happens in this one doesn't it yeah almost
1: a little bit of a bump in the interest curve because unlike most fantasy novels there's no real epic battle at the end i guess the dracus coming and destroying traven is a climax
0: Yeah, it's this weird little side trip where some serious action happens and then it kind of goes back to college shenanigans.
1: As though the only reason it exists is because books have climaxes?
0: It's very interesting how Quoth falls back into those old habits, right? He hangs out near the Aeolian, he runs into Dena, he has lunch with Will and Sim, and then has a scrap with Ambrose, and then goes on the horns. Like, these seem like things that he does all the time.
1: It does seem a little bit like callbacks, or... I wouldn't say repetitive, because the events of them are more like a series rather than a repetition.
0: But there are some notable variations on the usual routines.
1: Right. I'm saying, though, that as we are less than 100 pages away from the end of the book. The Name of the Wind itself does not really have a climax. There's no climactic end battle. There's no drawn-out action. But in some ways, there's the ending of what happened in Trayvon, and then there's this little bump in the interest curve of Ambrose is a deck. And... We get a little wrap-up with Ari. we get a little wrap-up with the Archives, we get a little wrap-up with all sorts of other things that kind of just put a bow on certain threads. And I guess the interlude that is coming up may be its own sort of climax, but it's not really a climax in Kvoth's story, it's a climax of the framing device?
0: Yeah, because we effectively have two parallel stories going on here. We have the story of Quoth, adventuring college student, and then we also have the story of Coat, humble innkeeper, and teller of tales. So it would make sense that even as we've come to the narrative climax of the story of Quoth, the college student, we're also going to have the climax of the story of Coat, the innkeeper, and tale teller.
1: Right, but I think that that's more of a climax to the entire book than anything that really happens
0: in Kvothe's story. There are definitely higher stakes. This segment here kind of reminds me of the Scouring of the Shire, in that really what we're seeing is our hero returns back to the usual day-to-day life after having an adventure, after having the routine completely upended, and... Kvothe after Traben behaves I think a little differently than before Traven, and I don't think he would have been able to call the wind prior to Traben. I think he's had a chance to learn something. In this case I think that learning is just what it actually means to observe the world around you and I think that's ultimately what lets his sleeping mind really take over and yeah. Like, the whole breaking of the loot thing, that's absolutely the last straw.
1: Yeah. Well, how about we go ahead and start from the beginning, because that's a very nice place to start.
0: When you read, it begins with A B C. When you sing, it begins with Do-Re-Mi.
1: Thank you for picking up what I was putting down. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Alright, so the beginning. We get a little wrap-up to Denna. Yay, she's not dead.
0: Boo, she's on the arm of some other dude.
1: And Quoth pretends that it doesn't bother him.
0: Narrator, it did bother him.
1: I'm sure it did bother him.
0: What's also interesting here is he is just as completely oblivious as he's always been. I mean, first of all, he doesn't notice that she's with someone else.
1: Right. He just knocks into her.
0: Which, I mean, that's a special kind of oblivious right there.
1: I don't know, have you ever just walked straight into a person or a pole or anything?
0: I mean, yeah, but usually when I do, like, if I knocked into someone and saw that they were with someone else, I would at least register that these two people were here.
1: I don't know. I worked at a game studio when Pokemon Go came out. (laughs) Oh, dear. I don't know how, but, like... You and I kind of missed the age of thinking that Pokemon is cool by like a couple of years in either direction.
0: Yeah, we were right in the sweet spot to think it was lame.
1: And so neither one of us got into it, but a lot of my coworkers were super into it. And yes, I had to help make sure that one of them didn't walk into traffic.
0: But they don't have smartphones in Temeran, So what's Quoth's excuse?
1: A book? I don't know.
0: <laughs> Either way, there's some pretty next-level obliviousness there. And I found it rather telling that it takes Will and Sim to actually break down the fact that, hey, Yadingus, she likes you.
1: I do like this exchange, though, because with the outside knowledge that we have of everything that has happened and the internal monologue that is coming from Kvoth or we get more context and we get a little bit of hey I waited for you and then we're thinking in the back of our heads like not very long and (laughs) trying to figure out if this dude that Denna is with is Master Ash or not and he's just a throwaway character as far as we know at least so far but what I like is Denna and he have this little subtle conversation that Kvoth totally gets. And then Denna says, I don't generally go for serial stories. Then she shrugged and gave me a hint of a wry smile and said, but I've certainly changed my mind about these things before. Maybe you'll convince me otherwise. She's saying I don't usually like going for the same person over and over again,
0: but maybe I would if it was you. I definitely got that part, and, I mean, she went out of her way to spend time with him after Trayvon. She could have left, as Will points out. And Sim's like, well, you dingus, she likes you.
1: You just want to say dingus
0: I do, it's fun to say.
1: There are two instances, though, before Denna is gone from the chapter. Foth says, I would never dream of keeping you. Don't let me keep you. Maybe she wants him to.
0: Yeah. Again, this is, I think, where that Pyrrhic victory comes in. So the term Pyrrhic victory is a reference to Pyrrhus, who was a figure in the Trojan War, who was reputed to be the son of Achilles and was famous for scoring a massive victory that also effectively cost the Greeks the rest of the war. Even as he was wiping out all of his foes, He overexerted himself and cut them off so they had to retreat. That's really what we're seeing here. This is Quoth not realizing that even as he's won, he's basically forcing himself to lose. In this case, it's because he's so afraid of revealing something to her or putting himself out there.
1: It's kind of melancholy, and it's also a little frustrating as a viewer of this scene from the outside of it.
0: Yeah, Sim here is, I think, the perfect audience surrogate. (laughs) Because a will-they-or-won't-they romance in a show or a movie can only go for so long before it gets tiresome. And then eventually you have the audience just saying, just kiss already. Or break up. (laughs) Right. Just pick one. I don't care which.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to get to that, I don't care which.
0: So to talk about the Gilmore Girls here. (laughs) Luke and Lorelei are the ultimate will-they-won't-they in that series, and then it seems like for a bit they're gonna say, yeah, they will, and it feels so good when they finally made that decision as writers. But then when the showrunners left, the new showrunners upended that whole thing with a weird subplot that involved long-lost daughter and Lorelei behaving like a butt. and completely scuttling the entire thing, which then it just feels even worse because you've said, okay, they will. Awesome. Hooray. We can move on and see them grow as a couple. But no, they won't. That's not a satisfying twist. Yeah. (sighs) Grumble cakes.
1: Things that go well and then they just shirt the bed right at the ending.
0: I mean, endings are tough.
1: Just ask Stephen King.
0: I mean, you look at any number of things that have started promisingly, but fell on their face in the landing and ended up spoiling all of the hard work that came before.
1: You know what didn't do that? Legend of Korra.
0: Legend of Korra did not do that. Also, what didn't? The Good Place. That one stuck the landing hard. And it was clear that they had planned for that all the way through. And... Yeah, it worked.
1: Now that we need to forcibly steer the conversation back to the plot.
0: So, yeah, that little conversation with Will and Sim is also good because it's a chance for us to actually see Quoth with people who are forthright with him. Like, there is no guessing how Will and Sim feel about him, and there is no guessing about their goodwill towards him. And everyone needs friends like them, I think. And I think we should all try to be friends like them. But we'll save that for (laughs) Frenemos.
1: Are you picking two people as your Frenemos? No comment. Okay, I'll leave that alone for the next half hour or so. Thank you. Alrighty. Engrossing conversation goes on. Kvoth somehow ignores his loot. He thinks that the loot wants to be in the sun, and I'm like, no. No, it does not. First of all, that is the best way to do something horrible to the neck, like have it warp, get it too warm, get it kind of moving a little bit. I doubt that there's a truss rod in this thing.
0: Yeah, the humidity adjustment is a nightmare.
1: Just... Being warm is a nightmare. The sun bleaching it is probably a nightmare. I'm thinking about the strings on our guitars and how when the weather changes, the tuning goes all out of whack. One of his pegs is loose. So why would you want to tempt fate?
0: Or Ambrose, as the case may be. And I gotta figure, like, How is the loot not within his line of sight here?
1: It's behind him, probably. On the bench. I mean... Kvoth's an idiot. We've already established this.
0: Yeah, we have. Like, if I were Kvothe, I would be sitting there having it at my feet, so I could see it, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I may have rubbed off on you a little bit on this kind of thing, because I'm so hypervigilant about everything that I don't think I could be out and about with a musical instrument, even if it was one that didn't cost, you know, a whole lot, even if it was crappy, but if I loved it, oh, it would be touching my foot and I'd still constantly check it.
0: I know. A good musical instrument is not something that you want to leave hanging out in a car, for instance.
1: For a lot of reasons.
0: So anyway, Ambrose steals it and then delivers a kind of lame limerick.
1: Yeah. One thing about the lame limerick, though. The reason that the song worked so well to get under Ambrose's skin was because he has that pride about the things that Quoth and Threp were criticizing. In this case, yeah... He uses the word ravel, which instantly enrages Kvoth, right? But he tries to insult him by saying that he got whipped. Kvoth is kind of proud about the circumstances that got him whipped, and he's also resigned. He doesn't care about the living. So, when that's the punchline of this limerick, it just doesn't matter to Kvoth. Breaking the loot matters to Kvoth. And oh, Just having two bullies in Kvoth's life that both do this, that break something that is so precious to him. Like, technically speaking, if my guitar broke, I could replace it with the same model. It wouldn't be the same guitar. (laughs) My guitar has a weird little notch taken out of the headstock from somebody being an idiot when they restrung the guitar when it was at Guitar Center. I have a story to go along with it. I got the thing for like 80 bucks off.
0: Yeah, there's definitely something where even if the CNC machine is doing the same thing, each piece of wood is slightly different and has its own unique character. And in a pre-industrial society where everything is completely hand-carved, completely crafted by an artisan, whether it's high quality or low quality, that is no small matter.
1: So even with a replacement, there is an emotional attachment to the specific thing. And it's just so painful. This is the same loot that got Quoth his talent pipes. Then this is the second time that Ambrose has done something to it.
0: It's a violation. Like if you think about what the loot represents, it's this foundational part of Quoth's identity It's the thing that he thinks of himself before everything else. He thinks of himself as a musician and performer. Before he thinks of himself as an arcanist. Before he thinks of himself as a student. Before he thinks of himself as a sympathist, as an adventurer, as a hero. First and foremost, this is the thing that ties him to his family. This is the thing that ties him to his past. This is the thing that ties him to who he wants to be and the casual cruelty, I think, is really what brings it out. Ambrose can tell his mean little limerick, and that's really all it is. It's just mean. It's not funny or clever or even particularly effective. It's just mean. It's like when someone plays a prank on you that's completely ineffectual, but the fact that they put as much effort as they did, even if it was poorly executed, the fact that they even wanted to do it is kind of a thing. And then then on top of all of that, the real insult is he then just casually throws the loot back. Clearly not expecting Kvothe to catch it at all.
1: Right, because loots are not meant to be thrown.
0: No, no. I mean, there is zero aerodynamics there.
1: There's more than there would be like in an acoustic guitar.
0: But not by much.
1: No, it's still about as effective as tossing a piano.
0: Yeah, and he knows that there's no way that that Kvothe could reasonably catch it. And frankly, I don't think he cares. If he catches it, no big deal, whatever. If he breaks it, I don't care. And it's that level of just complete apathy towards another human being that I think really stings Kvothe.
1: Now, do you think that If it were to drop to the ground and Ambrose saw that happen, do you think that he would not care? Or do you think that he would take glee?
0: I think he'd consider it a happy accident. We see him kind of do the little Nelson Muntz laugh there. (laughs) Ha ha. But he's not particularly invested one way or the other in the outcome. For him, it's just, if it breaks, it'll be funny. And if not, who cares? Like, he can't even be bothered to have malice about it. He's so removed from just being a human being that all he can do is laugh at someone else's misfortune.
1: I think it would be interesting to look back and see if there are parallels between this breaking of the loot and the breaking of the loot in Tarbion.
0: Let me go take a look.
1: I doubt that he called the wind... I don't think I remember that. I think we would have made a big point about that. But I'm wondering if he howled, if there is also an instance of the lute harming him, the broken lute cutting his finger or his hand or something.
0: I've got it up right now, so. So he goes, That's when I heard the noise and everything seemed to stop. And he says, After my troop was murdered, there are times when I would dream of my parents alive and singing. In my dream their deaths had been a mistake a misunderstanding a new play that they had been rehearsing and for a few moments i had relief from the great blanketing grief that was constantly crushing me i hugged them and we laughed at my foolish worry i sang with them and for a moment everything was wonderful but i always woke up alone in the dark by the forest pool what was i doing out here where were my parents then i would remember everything like a great wound ripping open they were dead and i was terribly alone and that great weight that had been lifted for just a moment would come crushing down again, worse than before because I wasn't ready for it. Then I would lay on my back, staring into the dark with my chest aching and my breath coming hard, knowing deep inside that nothing would ever be right ever again. When Pike threw me to the ground, my body was almost too numb to feel my father's loot being crushed underneath me. The sound it made was like a dying dream, and it brought that same sick, breathless ache back to my chest. I looked around and saw Pike breathing heavily and clutching his shoulder. One of the boys was kneeling on the chest of the other. They weren't wrestling anymore. Both were looking in my direction, stunned. I stared numbly at my hands, bloody where slivers of wood had pierced the skin.
1: There is mention of the splintered wood digging into both's hands and making them bloody. The same thing happens with his loot. He cuts his finger where the loot is broken.
0: And we can also see it breaking his mind a little bit here.
1: Which enables him to call the name of the wind.
0: Hey, that's the name of the book. <laughs> and the effect is dramatic, although I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's super effective <laughs> as an attack. Though Ambrose shows up later on to the uh, to the hearing, you know, looking like he's had a really rough time. You know, he's limping and he's got a cast on his arm or sling on his arm. It seems like he's mostly just playing that up for the court.
1: Especially when afterward he no longer is limping quite as much.
0: We get it. Quoth's an airbender.
1: Kvothe is kind of an airbender. I think Kvoth, though, is an airbender in the same way that Korra in season one is an airbender.
0: In fits and starts. <laughs> and he's clearly... Not even thinking about what he's doing here, because it's not really so much an attack as it is just a reaction. It would be the sort of reaction that you would get if you touched a wounded animal. If the animal actually hurts you, it's almost by accident.
1: And more your fault than its.
0: Yeah, because you were poking at this wounded creature. And let's be real, Quoth is still a wounded creature, especially after the destruction of his loot. Because that just reopens the wound of his primal loss.
1: The wind's name tore at his throat. It's visceral. It hurts. It kind of reminds me of a shout from Skyrim more than it does airbending.
0: Yeah, I could see that. He's just sort of letting this out. These are the things he can live without. Come on. I'm talking to you. Come on. Thanks, I love you. It's good. (laughs) Yeah, he's reflexive in this instance, and there's no real lasting damage to anyone or anything. Like, a few notes get scattered around, and it makes a great big shock for everyone, but no one seems to be really hurt.
1: Except Ambrose. I would like to give a little bit of credence to the idea that being knocked on your butt can hurt.
0: Yeah, I don't think he's had any lasting injury from it though. It's just that brief shock of being hurt when you didn't expect to. I think another difference between Tarbien and here is here he has friends. Because immediately, Will and Sim take him back to Master Kilvin to help him out. I just picture Kilvin like wait 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 slow down.
1: I picture Will and Sim just talking over one another, and then this happened, and this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, blah 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 blah, and Kilvin just going stop.
0: Yeah, again, part of why we love Master Kilvin is he does care and he wants to get the story, but he can't listen to both of them at the same time.
1: Oh my goodness, do I know this feeling so well? You and I watch a lot of YouTube, a lot of instances where people are talking, vlogs, news, MatPat videos, <laughs> film theorists and game theorist videos where Austin is just mile a minuteing off all of these physics equations and things, and then you talk, and I'm like, I can't, I absolutely cannot understand math being said at quantum speeds, and you speaking right now. One or the other needs to be quiet.
0: This is also an interesting case where we finally see both Willem and Master Kilvin switching to Siaru, which is their native tongue, to actually communicate with one another.
1: No, this is a really good point. We haven't really seen the two of them together at all, but communication is a really important thing. Being able to understand without subtext What somebody is trying to say to you, in the clearest way possible, is the best way to avoid misunderstandings. The flash comes to mind whenever I think about this. Because all I really want... I know it's not interesting TV or whatever, but all I want is sometimes... Barry, Barry, please, just be straight with someone. Like, just direct... Honest communication and stop trying to figure out, A, what they're thinking. You don't read minds. That is not your power. You go fast. That is what you do. B, trying to head someone off from being mad at you when they probably weren't mad at you in the first place, but now they're mad at you because you're obfuscating. Ah! (sighs) Ah!
0: Yeah. It's something where you can see two people for whom the common tongue is not actually their first preferred language. And so then they realize, oh, why bother with this pretense? We can actually speak the language that we know best.
1: I will say, though, it is also interesting to see two people who don't speak the same language trying to have a conversation with interpreters that are speaking for either of them. So... In the case that I'm talking about, I watched a vlog from a couple who has one member that is deaf and the other one who is hearing. And the hearing person speaks English and the deaf person mostly understands it. And their syntax of signing is along the same lines as English. And they're used to people around them speaking English. So that's what they look for when they're reading lips. So they went to go buy a truck from someone who speaks Spanish, who was with their son, who speaks English. So, American Sign Language, to English, to Spanish. So then, it turns out that the person who is signing and the person who speaks Spanish were able to communicate with one another just fine without the two English-speaking people.
0: Kind of reminds me of There's this one news conference featuring Stephen Gerrard, who is famously a Liverpudlian Scouse speaker, who is the coach of Rangers, which is the Scottish Premier League team, one of them out of Edinburgh, and he was with a player who was from Spain. And so because the Scottish accent was so unintelligible, Gerrard ends up speaking for the Scottish press act as an interpreter for his Spanish colleague because he could understand Steve couldn't understand the rest of the press and then the joke was of course this is the first time that the scouse has been the most intelligible person in the English speaking language oh no
1: I've tried to listen to people with scouse accents oh my gosh no
0: yeah, for such a small country, there is a wide diversity of accents within the United Kingdom.
1: Well, once again, I am steering us forcibly back to the
0: plot. So Kilvin isn't really able to do much, because before he can do anything, Elodin swoops in. Without knocking. That kind of seems to be par for the course for Elodin. I don't know that he's ever knocked on a door.
1: Or that he cares about other people's privacy and or property.
0: Yeah, I think he kind of just goes where he wills. So Elodin appears and dramatically sweeps into the room and then does this thing where he just peers at Kvoth and he seems like he's looking through him.
1: Well, first before he does that mystical mumbo-jumbo, he says a word... There are too many vowels for me to even attempt to say this word. Do you want to try to say?
0: Earl of Seti.
1: All right. So Eldin says this word, tells Kvoth to say it, and Sim just looks at him and goes, Wind? Because that's apparently what Sim heard. So I wonder, again... If you know the name of something, if you hear it differently than someone who does not know its true name.
0: It could be. We don't know what language Elodin is speaking to him when he says this.
1: Also, we don't know if Sim just translated. Or if it sounded like wind in common tongue. There are some little bits of this that kind of speak to me. Elodin closed his eyes briefly, peacefully as if he were trying to catch a faint strain of music wafting gently on a breeze. His eyes changed. Quoth's eyes change. They change color. Elidan's eyes changed so that he could look through Quoth.
0: Yeah, he does sort of a mystical x-ray vision almost.
1: And then Quoth has massive vertigo and sleeps for 18 hours. End of chapter.
0: And then, at the end of all of this, it is time to pay the bill.
1: He gets a blessed half an hour to not care about things, and then he's found by an errand boy saying, you need to be at the university, you are going on the horns now.
0: <laughs> it seems like it's a regular thing for him.
1: Accurate. I just wonder how, after 18 hours, how they would know that both would be awake. And there? What? It seems like a happy accident, or maybe they have a tracker to find out if he's still passed out? What?
0: The runner system in the city is weird to me. Like, they always seem to know where to find people.
1: Well, we just never get the mistakes, I guess. Yeah,
0: but they always seem to know how to find Quoth when he's in trouble.
1: That does bring up a good point, because... If Kvothe is due to be on the horns in a half an hour and the runner is late, what happens?
0: If the runner doesn't get lucky, which, I mean...
1: There's got to be a better way to say
0: that. I mean, if the runner has an accident or looks in the wrong places...
1: Or is waylaid by something.
0: Right. What happens? That seems radically inefficient. <laughs> Davy, at least, is like, I have your blood. I can douse for you wherever you are. Maybe they do something like that. Maybe. I mean, it'd be weird for them not to. It would be weird for them to do. I think they've got a hair of everyone who's ever slept in the muse.
1: Let's just hope that they don't catch somebody's familiar. I don't know.
0: (laughs) At this point, they bring him up on the horns, and you kind of get the sense that if this were a college movie... Master Hem would be the disapproving dean who's always got it out for the heroes.
1: Are you just picturing The Breakfast Club featuring Foth?
0: Little Bit, or Animal House, or any number of other college movies.
1: Fair enough. However, I want to point something out. He read the syllabus finally.
0: And the handbook. Exactly. (laughs) And he makes a pretty good case against Ambrose here. Ambrose was pretty malicious in his theft and destruction of Quoth's one item of value.
1: And he gets punished accordingly. Now, I think Quoth keeps, wittingly or unwittingly, pissing him off. Might just be a feature, not a bug?
0: I think part of the reason he pisses him off so much is mostly just because, narratively, he's required to have an enemy on the board. Eh. There has to be a reason why someone would go against the reasonable explanation.
1: Conflict.
0: Yeah, our only explanation of Hem's behavior is mostly that Hem's just a jerk.
1: Yeah, I do wish that we understood a little bit of his motivations for being just quite so... having it out for the little
0: upstart. He's getting caught up on technicalities that are kind of facile to even the most basic logical scrutiny. Like, you can't both steal and destroy something, you can only be tried for one of those things. That's the kind of specious logic that doesn't hold up at all. This is supposed to be your logic teacher? Come on. And this could also be quote the narrator setting him up as a bit of a straw man.
1: If there are underlying motivations, I just want to know what they are. That's all I have to say on that. The end result of all of this is that Ambrose has to pay Quoth 20-something-odd talents, which I have to assume doesn't really affect Ambrose in terms of the monetary value, but I'm sure it affects Ambrose in terms of, like, pride.
0: It's the admission of guilt more than the amount that stings him.
1: I think it's the existence of a punishment more than a feeling of guilt.
0: Right. Because his whole thing is he feels like he's above the law. And the moment someone tries to hold him to any shred of account for his actions, it seriously wounds him. And it offends his sensibilities. And meanwhile, of course, there is that charge of malfeasance that he's able to level against Quoth, and this is where that victory that Quoth scored earlier becomes truly Pyrrhic, because it results in expulsion.
1: Before he is expelled, or worse, he says, but I don't even know what I did. He didn't have a chance to speak with Elodin, he didn't have a chance to understand what exactly happened when he called the wind. I'm not even sure that he really recognized that he did call the wind.
0: Yeah, it's really strange because you compare that with his actions that got him brought up on the horns the first time when he gave him the hot foot. In that instance, he knew exactly what he was doing.
1: And he knew that it would probably result in some form of punishment.
0: And it was pretty clearly premeditated. Eh. Not terribly premeditated, but he had to actually make a decision to do the thing and then take a series of complex steps that only would be possible with a degree of forethought.
1: So concurrently meditated, not premeditated.
0: Okay, yeah, I'll give you that one. (laughs) (laughs) But he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that there would be consequences for it. And he did it anyway. In this case, he doesn't even have this idea of conscious effort. Of conscious decision. Which is kind of the point.
1: Now, Quoth wants Ambrose to be suspended from the university. He doesn't get what he wants. And I think, narratively speaking, not getting what he wants is kind of the point. It would feel too unearned if he got everything he asked for.
0: Yeah, well, and... He himself has been on the receiving end of grace from the Masters in the form of not getting expelled after his multiple shenanigans. So clearly expulsion or suspension is not something that they hand out lightly.
1: And Quoth even knows that. He said he was only slightly disappointed. In fact, he was rather surprised that he'd managed to carry it as far as he had. But yes, we are left at the end of the chapter with, I was to be expelled from the university. My life was over. And before we start getting in on, my life was over, when you're in the middle of a stressful situation like that, those feelings of everything crashing down, those feelings of this is over, I am a failure, all of these things that when you see them from the outside, can feel like whining. When you experience them on the inside, feel legitimate and real. There is something about trying so hard. It's that sunk cost fallacy. I put all of myself into this, only to have to make the decision or have the decision made for me that it's over. So at DigiPen... It is not uncommon to take seven classes at once. It's stupid, I'll tell you that. Even if you think you can handle it, most of the classes at DigiPen are rigorous and would be rigorous at a different university that said, hey, five is your limit. And it would still be tough. But I think in my second year, there was a class that was touted as being one of the hardest for sophomores to get through where I poured a lot of myself into that class. And I had either five or six other classes. I might have taken six classes, I might have taken seven. I know I never successfully took more than six classes in one semester ever. And I'm pretty certain that I never successfully took more than five classes at the same time in one semester ever. I had to drop a class because just the workload of all of my classes was too much and I was not living up to my own standards in the one class that I wanted to be so proud of my work in. But trying to come to that realization and trying to figure out that it was going to all work out and be okay, if I let go of those dug-in desires. I already have an anxiety disorder and that Feeling of knowing that I needed to do something to help it and not wanting it to be the solution that I knew it had to be were so conflicting that I spent days just in this on the edge of panic. My life felt like it was going to be over if I admitted defeat, which wasn't even a defeat, it was more of a postponement. In terms of something that is a little more easily understood and a little more mundane. Sometimes when I'm working on a project and lunchtime comes around, I'm like, I want to finish this part. I want to finish this part so bad that I am not going to eat lunch. And then about an hour after lunch, I'm like, okay, well, I clearly should have eaten my lunch, but I'm so close to the end of this project that I'm just going to push through. And that is really stupid. Because then I look up and it's four o'clock. So it's like four hours past when I should have eaten maybe an hour or two before I'm going to eat again, and I'm like, I'm going to just wait. And then I just get hangry.
0: Having observed you in that state, I can confirm that the latter is true. <laughs> it boils down to the old Kenny Rogers advice from the gambler. You got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him, know when to walk away, and when to run. <laughs> That's really what it all boils down to. Sometimes you have to lose a hand to win the game. Sometimes you have to be willing to take a temporary loss to actually come out ahead at the end of it all. Like they say, you never count your money while you're still at the table. (laughs) There'll be plenty of time for counting up when the deal is done.
1: (laughs) I think that that's a great note on which to stop our deep dive into the chapters and move on to the Phrenemos.
0: Yes. So as I alluded to earlier, I actually have two because... Will and Sim, I think, kind of form a dynamic duo here. I really love the way that they take care of Quoth here. They're, first of all, glad to have him back after his adventure, and they're justifiably upset that he didn't leave a note or let them know where he was going, or, hell, maybe even ask if they want to come with, because they might be up for that. So yeah, I can totally see where they might have been useful on that whole excursion. Could have helped him out quite a bit. And meanwhile, they quickly find out where there's some inconsistencies in Denna's story.
1: Or rather Sim does.
0: Both Will and Sim find the inconsistencies. Will speculates that maybe there's something sinister. Which is possibly true. We know that Master Ash is probably up to no good. And Sim pretty correctly surmises that Denna likes him. Like, this isn't some great mystery problem. Quoth really is overcomplicating a lot of things in terms of his relationship with Denna and Will kind of cuts through all that bullcrap. You know, it's always good to have people like that. Then when Ambrose steals Quoth's loot, it's Simmon who notices this first and he immediately stands up to Ambrose. In spite of the fact that Sim has something to lose. He has status that could make it very difficult if Ambrose decided to take exception to him. It could have consequences for his family. But here again, Sim stands up for his friend and for what's right, which is a bit of courage, and it's good to see that. Afterwards, when Quoth is mostly catatonic, they take him to go get help. They both do. They stay with him and they try and help him as best they can. I'm not sure exactly why they picked Kilvin, but probably mostly because they know that Kilvin likes Quoth.
1: I mean, I'd have taken him to the Medica?
0: Yeah, probably. Although, if you're afraid that they'll take him to the rookery.
1: Maybe not.
0: They still took him to get help.
1: This speaks to the idea that maybe, maybe, the university could do a better job of instilling trust between the students and their teachers?
0: Yeah. I think there's definitely some very serious ethical problems that the school has within its administration, but that's a topic for another time.
1: Fair enough. I'm just saying that, you know, it might be that Will has history with Kilvin that means that Kilvin's the one that Will just relates to best, besides just being shaldish as a direct link.
0: That's true, but it probably does help that he's able to speak in his native language. At the end of the day, they both are there for their friend when their friend needs them. And I think we should all try to be that way. So when we see a friend in pain, we should be there for that friend. I think we should always be there to remind our friends that they matter and that they're cared for. But yeah, I think that we could all do with being more like Will and Sim in this case. They're both doing that in their own unique ways, and I think both of those are valid and important. So, that's my for Nemos.
1: I think it's a good choice.
0: Thank you. I believe it's your turn for an interesting fact.
1: It is, and I have been telling you for about a week now that my interesting fact is going to be short. That's fine. It's going to be really short. Okay. Like, you remember how in the wise man's Sphere, I think it's in the wise man's Sphere, because we're quickly running out of... The name of the wind, and I don't think it's going to show up there. But the interesting facts that the students tell to Eldin are usually about a sentence or two long. And you know how we have been going, like, minutes long on stuff? No, this is, like, a sentence-ish long.
0: Okay. Your preamble about how short this is has been longer than your fact, I have a feeling. It is! So let's dispense with the suspense.
1: I will, as soon as I find my fact again in my little notebook. <laughs> Did you know that a group of wild rabbits is, and this is true, called a fluffle?
0: Well, I do now, and that's adorable, and I love it. Raspberries averted.
1: Yay! (laughs) Fluffle is just such a cute word.
0: Can you imagine someone saying, I got attacked by a fluffle of wild rabbits? (laughs) And how hard would it be to take that person seriously?
1: (laughs) Exactly. I saw that fact on somebody's Facebook post and I looked at it and I'm like well now I have to know if that's true because it could not be true before anyone says it yes it could also be a colony I googled it but Fluffle why would you say colony if you could say Fluffle
0: motion passed it's Fluffle
1: it's Fluffle but it already was Fluffle so
0: (laughs) that's great all right now it is time for us to share our seven words. And so in this one, I had a number of choices because again, Denna makes an appearance. So some of them include, I've missed you, where have you been? There's also maple leaves dance circles on the cobblestones, which is a wonderfully autumnal feeling. Then I waited, but the tide never came. Forgive my rudeness, both, this is Lintarin. Then I have some interesting stories for you. I would never dream of keeping you and finally this one is actually the one I chose and it's from Ambrose of all people some people have no sense of humor what got me thinking on that one is these are seven words of love and Ambrose in his own perverse way I think loves that Quoth has made him the center of his universe
1: gives him a space in his head rent-free
0: yep Ambrose loves that he has that power with Quoth and over Quoth. Yeah, it's twisted and it's toxic, and I think there is more than a little bit of love and hate in there. And there's also something to it about how we think about humor as an element of privilege. It is very easy to tell someone who is the butt of a joke that they don't have a sense of humor, but that's coming from a place of remarkable privilege. When someone is being hurt by something like that, it's very hard to have a sense of humor about it. Not everyone is in a position to just laugh off every little thing. If someone does not appreciate being the butt of a joke, it is not that they don't have a sense of humor, it's that they don't like being laughed at. If the person who is the object of your joke isn't laughing, then it isn't a funny joke. Just some thoughts there. So. You had seven words from life. What'd you got?
1: Okay, so mind you, this was said in sarcasm, but it was said this morning by you. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Because technically correct is the best correct.
0: Well, it is.
1: (laughs) You said it because I said something that was technically correct, and I can no
0: longer remember what it was. You're welcome. I and mean, then it's also a great Futurama quote. All right, and so with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me.
1: Thank you for potting with me.
0: And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 86 through 87 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of lifting the veil.
1: We would like to thank our friend, Shawnee Jang, for our theme music,
0: and a huge thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring together.
1: Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough.
0: And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough.
1: If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses.
0: To one more day above the roses. Ding. Ding!
1: Sorry, editing me. My nose is full of snot. Snot. Boy, I'm gonna love hearing that tomorrow.